Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. The Canadian Automotive Parts Association is building a, a, a concept electric vehicle called the Arrow. Now, I interviewed Flavio Volpe, who is the president of the association, about it oh, about 18 months ago. So I thought it was time for an update, but I also want to talk to him about the state of the auto industry, because in the past 18 months, both globally and in Canada, there have been so many developments. So I'm really keen to talk to him. Welcome to the interview, interview Flavio. Thanks for having me back, Markham. Well, let's start with the the arrow. And I'm really excited about this because our family has targeted 2025 as uh, when we're going to buy, it's going to be, we're going to buy our first EV. And uh, I want to know whether I can buy an arrow or not. Well, first, let me tell you a couple of things. Number one, it's it's beyond a concept. It's a concept prototype. It is a fully functioning vehicle uh, that is uh, built to 2025 motor vehicle safety specs so we could demonstrate the technology. The first one, the only one that's currently in the scope, uh, will be done in about three and a half weeks. I was out there uh, today at Ontario Tech University, and uh, we were just testing some of the electronics, and uh, we're excited about it. Uh, can you buy one? Well, look, I always said we were going to build the first one. We're going to demonstrate that we've got the technology, the know-how, and we've got the companies uh, to supply them. Uh, but, you know, I'm just a humble trade association uh, leader here. <laughs> so there's a lot of interest in uh, seeing a second arrow built or a thousandth arrow built. Maybe you need to interview me again in 18 months. Well, you know what? Uh, I think the idea of selling the prototype to the humble energy journalist is a great yeah. idea. Yeah, but I'd yeah, like to submit that. Yeah. We've got it earmarked for you. Not to, so to spoil what's, it. What's, has the Arrow prototype turned out the way you thought it would? Is it, like, I remember you talking about this was going to be, it was going to have uh, uh, like five or 600 kilometers of range, if I remember correctly. It was going to be uh, very comfortable. It was going to be built to kind of handle Canadian weather and, and road conditions. Has it turned out the way you thought it would? Well, we're just about to finish it, so we can answer all your questions once we start testing it. But in terms of the uh, quality of build, uh, the quality of components and systems that are in there, and what we think will be the theoretical range on it, um, or at least is the theoretical range, an untested range, uh, falls within that. Uh, I just saw, uh, today I just went through some of the, the components as we were testing them. We've got a dual motor setup that, uh, that'll uh, make it uh, competitively quick and competitive range. And, and, and it's great that we're doing it with Ontario Tech University because they've got this um, really unique setup uh, in their uh, automotive uh, center of excellence with a full range climactic moving roadway uh, wind tunnel. So we're going to test for uh, absolutely all of that. Well, that is very cool. Uh, and I guess that uh, is a nice lead, sets up my next question quite nicely, which is the Canadian government has set a target of 100% uh, zero emission vehicle sales by 2035. Does that look like it's going to be possible? No. Now, 
It's not for lack of trying. And there's a series of of different constituencies that got to make this happen. The first is the consumer. We see a lot of pent up consumer demand. Give me a zero emission vehicle. Give me a, an electric car really is what they think of. But certainly I think there's going to be some options in the hydrogen space and give it to me at a competitive price. So the second constituency being the car makers, I think they're going to do their part and say, you know, we're going to give you something real in the 30 to 40,000 range. And I think by the time that we get to the, to the early 2030s and mid 2030s, we're going to see them in the high 20 ranges. And so um, the, the, the third constituency really is, that big government group that is either uh, incentives or infrastructure or a combination of, of both. And that's where we're going to fail. We're not going to fail by lack of will. You know, the federal government's in for uh, in purchase incentives and most provinces in this country are in it uh, right now uh, that helped offset some of those, those cost deltas. It's how are we going to charge them? So, you know, I'm, I'm here in the city of Toronto and we've got 40% of the people that live here live in multifamily residences. And those who live in single family residences, a lot of them have street parking. So we've got to really work out how we're going to charge these vehicles. We're not going to be able to sell a vehicle to someone confidently who doesn't know uh, how to service and charge them in their condo, never mind their townhouse, never mind their, their street side semi. And so we've been trying to talk as candidly as possible to all levels of government now saying, we will do our part as the second constituency. The first constituency looks like it's there, but you really got to think new ways uh, to get us to be able to support 100%. I think that number will probably be somewhere around 50 by 2035, but the tipping point will have been met. And uh, we won't say electric vehicles anymore. We're going to say vehicles. Gotcha. Now, uh, I've interviewed utilities, uh, electric utilities, uh, all over Canada, all over the United States. Uh, electric vehicles and growing electric load and how to service that invariably comes up. And it what the utilities tell me is, is, hey, we've known this has been coming for a while. We've been planning for it. And we plan to build out the infrastructure that's required, not just for single family dwellings where you need a, you want to put a charger or a 240 volt, like a level two charger sure. in your garage. We're thinking about we're thinking already about multifamily dwellings and condos and parking garages and, and those sorts of things. And it sounds like you're not confident that they'll be able to move quickly enough in the next 12, 13 years to enable the level of adoption that's required. Well, luckily I have a little bit of perspective on this in a former life. I set the prices in um, in uh, 300 buildings, uh, residential buildings across the country. And then in another chapter, I built um, uh, renewable energy power plants. In both of those, you're dealing with the final end user, uh, the, the, the distribution lines, and then the, the transmission lines. You can say that you have the will to do it. In this province, for example, in, in Ontario, Canada, uh, you have the uh, you have the the Ontario Energy Board as the regulator. If you're going to build new infrastructure as a as a local distribution company, uh, you have to appeal to the Ontario Energy Board for that spend, and the Ontario Energy Board says yes or no, and uh, they'll allow you to charge it back at nine percent a year. Um, what's the life of a charging product? We don't know. Uh, how much infrastructure do you need to put in public spaces? So uh, in the right of way, the municipal right of way, and how many in a private uh, condominium building? 
or in a private apartment building. The way that those buildings are owned and governed uh, doesn't give the right of way for new infrastructure to be built by the municipality without consultation. And the structures are different. The, the ownership structure and the buildings are different. If I own an apartment building, I'm the one point of contact. Well, what if you got to negotiate with every condo board in this country? Ultimately, somewhere along the line, we're going to stop talking about the delta of the price difference between an internal combustion engine car and its electric equivalent. They're going to be the same or actually less on the electric side because all the all the, 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 the horsepower, no pun intended, of the automakers is going to go into that technology and we're going, to, we're going to strand the rest of it. We're going to start talking about the cost of the charging infrastructure. Uh, are we going to get into a sub-metering business uh, for condos? Are we going to get uh, municipal infrastructure built into apartment buildings? Is there a mix of it? Is there another layer of private industry that goes into there? Somewhere along the line, someone has to pay for the infrastructure, and the infrastructure costs a lot more uh, than uh, than the actual energy. And then and then when we sit there and we say, okay, how are we going to distribute it? Well, how does the load pattern change when uh, right now here in Canada, for example? we can uh we can predict what the base load is you know industry is working during the day and then we're running heaters at night or air conditioning at night depending on the calendar uh we don't have uh 20 million cars plugged in charging at night uh how is that going to affect the way the rates are applied and that type of infrastructures are and 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 how is it uh serviced there's so many questions so many questions it's not uh there's no black and white here Okay. So getting back to my, my comment about, you know, having interviewed the utilities and the fact that they are planning to, to address the very issues that you raise, oh. I guess we could be a little skeptical that they're going to be able to do it in time to get to hundred percent ZEVs by 2035. I think, I think that's a fair comment. Yeah. And I think also this idea that the, that building all that, that infrastructure is when you get down into the nuts and bolts of it is more, maybe more complex than we understand. And, and, and I get that. So what do we have to do then to overcome those obstacles in time? Because, you know, we don't have to, we have to fix it long before 2035 to hit the targets. So what do we have to do in the next few years to overcome those? Is it at the federal level? Is it at the provincial level, the municipal level? Is it where, where do we have to, what do we have to do? I think probably we have to start from a, one statistic. What is the what is the ratio of vehicles to charging stations, uh, and or the 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 concentration within a specific geography, and then we should cost those. What do they cost today, and what do they cost on the declining cost of technology as it rolls out, and then we're going to figure out who's going to fund it. And um, I think everybody who who's in the space says, "Oh, federal targets, federal funding," but uh, energy is a is a provincial jurisdiction, and it's usually a municipal uh, uh, actor that delivers it. And so, you know, I think we we are looking at a requirement for an unprecedented collaboration between three levels of government with the exact uh, targets uh, in common. And I think if we go across this country, uh, there's a culture in Quebec and BC that's different than the one in Alberta or even in Ontario. And so, um, you know, good luck to everybody who's going to do it. We, I know we're in for our part, but I don't want to be naive about that one. Uh, okay. And, and again, uh, again, fair enough, but, uh, and this will be my last question on this part of the interview. Sure. Uh, 
you're the guy who I, I who talks to policymakers yeah. in federal level at NBC in Quebec in Alberta. Yeah. Are you do you have any confidence that they're grappling with this issue or that they're capable of grappling with it in the time frame that we need them to? Well, I tell them all the same thing. If you agree that that's the target and you'll agree that it's probably not you in 2035 that misses the target or achieves the target, um, then you probably de-risk a little bit, spend a little bit more time and money right now going to achieve that target. Um, you don't have to face the electorate or face whatever we decide is going to be the judge in 2035. Plant a few trees that you're not going to, uh, under whose uh, shade you're not going to sit. It, it is, it's a very, very difficult thing to do as a politician. You know, you, you've got to prioritize what, well, you have to, the culture is to prioritize uh, a mix of what's important today and what's going to get me reelected tomorrow. Um, and so we're kind of speaking to them candidly saying, I'll support you publicly. I'll say, I'll be the one that says we're not going to get there. And then you come up with the ideas that are new that are going to get us a little bit further and a little bit further, a little bit further. I don't think 100% is uh, the passing grade. I think the passing grade is 50% by 2035 because it would be zero. There would be no going back whatsoever. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be, be interviewing you between now and 2035, just uh, advance warning. And yeah. we can talk about the progress along the way to whether or not we're going to make this, this, uh, our targets. Now let's, let's shift gears here for a minute. I want to talk about the impact of the U S inflation reduction act, because yeah. that, I mean, uh, I read Biden's campaign literature about the electric vehicle industry. And it was a shocking document because he said, you know what? China's beating our pants off. Yeah. We are losing badly. Uh, and of course, he blamed it on Trump. But nevertheless, yeah, that's politics. But he admitted it is America was not number one, might not even have been number two. He said, but we understand now where this industry is going, electrification of transportation, how important that is. And we are going to do something about it. Well, fast forward a year and a half, you got the Inflation Reduction Act, $369 billion, probably another two or $300 billion in related acts. And yeah. suddenly there is going to be a North American electric vehicle industry in a big way that wants to be competitive with China. What does that mean for Canada? Well, that's a real loaded question. And I'll go back to first principle on it. I think the reason that we lose to China in deployment of uh, of uh, EVs and the infrastructure is that's a centrally planned economy with uh, that relies on industrial policy, and that uh, up until very recently in the U.S. and and its allied uh, North American market, uh, we're saying, well, let's see what let's see if we can uh, push the market a little bit, with regulation, and a little bit with investment. I think Biden's uh, IRA is um, the first real step into industrial policy in this space. And it's causing for Canada to have to respond. What we were able to do in the IRA that we didn't do in the in the BBB that it replaced was in that Build Back Better bill, there was a EV tax credit proposed for U.S. consumers of up to $12,500 if you bought a car made in a U.S. plant with U.S. batteries uh, and U.S. labor. I mean, split in 7500 4500 um, uh, dollar increments. But it excluded Canadian cars. Now, we make 2 million cars a year. We sell 85% of them to U.S. customers. would have killed us. So we did a really big lobby effort, 
prime minister to president and then everybody else on down to get that changed. We added North America into the EV tax credit. But if you read the act, one of the things that is um, uh, troubling, I think, is the word, but probably you know makes us have to uh, work even harder. Is there is a there is a there is a tax credit for battery production in the United States that you know not to get into too much of the details, but if you ran a gigafactory in the U.S., it's probably worth about a billion dollars worth of opex coverage a year. That's incredible. And so here in Canada, we had this great run of investment announcements over the last 18 months. All five OEMs here said they're going to make electric cars here. And then um, LG and Umicore said, let's do two big gigafactories here. And the federal um, industry minister said, there's probably two more coming. Well, in those battery investments, Canada, Ontario, Quebec are going to have to be competitive with the IRA's um, essentially billion dollar annual uh tax credit is the u.s going to flow a billion annually is it going to do it for the life of the probably not but that's not how you make decisions in a boardroom for um for investment location and so it's cost for us canada inc to go back to the drawing board and say well we may not match that credit how do we make a, a competitive package uh uh more attractive to these major uh, uh, car makers. Now, I want to talk about industrial policy. And yeah. in full disclosure, uh, uh, regular readers and or viewers and listeners will know uh, I was hired on contract to write uh, the Alberta Federation of Labor's recent skate to where the puck is going, which is based entirely on industrial policy. Yeah. And when you talk, when you heard about uh, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland talking recently about real muscular industrial policy, yeah, she got that out of that report. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, we, we used to do industrial policy after the Second World War up until about 1980. We're now rediscovering it because we realize we're getting our pants kicked by uh, yeah. by China and Europe on in industry, the new clean energy industries like EVs and batteries. So the, I asked uh, uh, Natural Resources Minister uh, Jonathan Wilkinson at a press conference recently, what is, how does the federal government define industrial policy? And he said three things, carbon pricing, pots of money, like the growth fund and those sorts of things, and policy and regulations. What's your take on industrial policy from your industry's point of view? And is the federal government's definition of industrial policy adequate to the job? I mean, in fairness to the minister who we engage with on a regular basis, the first and the third pot are always there. That's not industrial policy. That's governing a country. Uh, it's tax policy and 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 maybe some uh, sometimes immaterial uh, incentives. That middle piece is if you're saying you're in you're in an industrial policy age as a player, that pot of money has to be disproportionate to the pot of money that was there ten years ago. And it's got to be not equivalent, but competitive to the choices. So if we have a lower operating uh, uh, cost region here versus the U.S., or, you know, for lots of different reasons, uh, then you don't have to match that money, but you got to get there proportionately. And I'm not sure that we're there. We're there on a few pieces, but I'm not sure that we're there on uh, the types of things that get us to 100% uh, 
uh, EV adoption by 2035 with a very material proportion of that coming from Canadian industrial base. Uh, it, it also is, and I'm glad you mentioned Alberta. I keep saying everybody, you pay for that industrial policy from the revenues that you generate. And right now, the revenues that we generate are on the other side of that EV ledger. And so we can't say, forget it, and we're just going to go this way. Well, I don't know how we paid for that. And so some of that industrial policy has to be either uh, phase out or transformation uh, of that of that legacy industry. And then having a very reasonable uh, timeline on that. If we say we're going to get out of fossil fuels tomorrow, we won't be able to pay for EVs. But we're also kind of dumb to suggest that we can make it a uh, make a go of it as a country uh, by foregoing uh, the 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 tax revenues that come from that and the prosperity that that is the other side of the fulcrum. And the rest of the world, we want to get there maybe before everybody, uh, or maybe at the, the lead pack. But there's but a lot of them that are going there aren't aren't risking their own current economic prosperity. I think that's the fourth pot of industrial policy. Well, uh, let me address that a little bit. And again, um, uh, drawing on this report that I, I was was the writer on, the first it had seven missions. The f- number one mission is that between now and 2050, the uh, Canadian oil and gas industry be transitioned from producing feedstock for fuels, so into refineries, from to feedstock for materials, advanced materials. Now that could be making carbon fiber out of bitumen and carbon fiber, Alberta innovates the, the provincial agency that's it's spearheading this research and commercialization, thinks that the auto industry would be a big, uh, big market for, uh, you know, carbon fiber produced in Alberta. So you don't necessarily reduce the amount of production, but you have a different market for it. You have a different application for it. And so you can keep generating some of those, you know, a lot of those jobs, if not all of them, plus additional jobs that you create in the, in the manufacturing sector. So there are strategies out there to address some of this, but they all come back to industrial policy because you have to, you you have to target these things very strategically. And one of them, of course, in the EV space is batteries, because China right now, it's not just the batteries as we, we and when it's not just the minerals, which is a whole set, it's the metals. Yeah. So 80% of the, the metals that go into, into batteries are processed and refined in China. And it seems to me that a Canada can produce a lot of the minerals that are going to be required, but boy, oh boy, what about the value that's created if we also ref- process and refine them? Yeah. What your yeah, take on that? I, I mean, I I agree with you, and uh, the 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 challenge is the you know we go back to different levels of government, different priorities, and shorter cycles. The real challenge is to turn around and get a get a government in Ottawa to say. I agree with that. We should do that for the West and then get Western provincial governments to say, I agree with you. We're going to work with the federal government on it and then agree on the diagonal, you know, what, what's the pace. And uh, it, it takes some courage on both levels of government and both of the major parties to be able to go and invest in that because it serves neither one of them in the current, uh, political climate to go and work with each other in the way in which a conservative government in uh, Toronto 
is working with a liberal government in Ottawa. There's a pretty direct line in the in the auto sector there. I, I think it, it's going to take a whole generation of um, uh, political movers and shakers from Central Canada and Eastern Canada to bring uh, to bring the West along as well in this. Now. I want to talk about that because what we're talking about here is creating political space for yeah. governments at the federal level and the, and the provincial level to do things that they maybe couldn't do right now that aren't aren't on their political radar, that aren't politically palatable to their voters. And they need that space needs to be created. Now, Flavio, I read yeah. your tweets, dude. Yeah. I, I read what you say in the media and yeah. I and I when I read them, I go, aha. I know what Flavio is up to do. He's he's creating yeah. a narrative. He's creating yeah. a narrative. He's helping to create that political space where policy can change. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. You know, I probably need a thousand people, ten thousand people tweeting and saying the same things. I'll use, for example, I went to Washington a month ago to listen to Christy Freeland deliver a speech at the Brookings Institute that said, "We've got to look at the world a little differently. Uh, we've got to figure out who our who our friends are and trade more with them." And then said, let's help them get the critical materials and raw materials they need uh, to wean themselves off fossil fuel. Now, to a lot of people, what that means is uh, we need a president and administration in Washington that thinks differently about pipelines and a government in Ottawa that thinks a little differently about pipelines and says, let's help the Americans get off foreign oil. And at the same time, become the pipeline, no pun intended, for American critical minerals in um, in the electric vehicle space. Uh, it's difficult to do. There's a lot of liberals who who would not like to hear me say that. And there's a lot of conservatives who wouldn't trust me saying that. But there's a lot of normal people. I think the majority of us in the middle will say, kind of makes sense. You know, we all have security issues. And it doesn't matter what we do. We've spent the last 30 years, and I'm a big free trader, but we spent the last 30 years saying, let's find global markets for Canadian goods, only to be uh, uh, left to understand specifically that in the goods you want to trade, they go south. And we talk a lot about uh, doing something different on energy and uh, ignoring the opportunity that you know the Americans have to wean off China and Russia and the Middle East, and we're here. If we could do that together, and there's got to be change in Washington, and even the last guy in Washington who was a, was a, a gong show on a lot of things, his group also, his administration didn't help there either. And in Ottawa, it's kind of hard for the current group to say, hey, by the way, let's go back into that space. But God, it makes sense to so many of us, including those of us who are in the car business. Okay, so here's how I understand this. Yeah. And uh, and I won't take credit for thinking this up on my own. I, it came out of a, a, a report on industrial policy by from the Transition Accelerator. I think it was Bentley Al Dr. Bentley Allen who who wrote it. He said, "Look, global supply chains are in flux. Now that that is true. Just switching from internal combustion engine vehicles to uh, electric vehicles, all of a sudden your supply chains all have to be re-engineered, re and parts manufacturers like the ones that you represent all have to, you know, invest in new equipment and train their workers. All of that stuff. So the supply chains are in flux. Then we have Russia invading Ukraine. Then we have China's increasing, you know, militarism. We'll say, and and now we have this idea of friend shoring. And now all supply chains are up for grabs. Yeah. And so 
if we're going to, if, and it appears that's the way the world is going, we're going to regional blocks where you've got Asia, Pacific, Europe, and North America. Yep. And North America and Europe may trade, uh, will have some level of trade, but certainly the, you know, the, the goal is to, is to not trade as much with China and build those supply chains at home. So we're going to friend shore stuff. Now, all of a sudden, your, your supply chains not only are in flux, but you got to create new stuff. Yeah. And it, like, yeah. It, just like the, uh, uh, the uh, critical minerals uh, refining and processing we talked about. So it seems to me that the tremendous economic opportunity that's presenting itself to Canada to re-industrialize or to industrialize to a level we've never had before is so much more important to us than this idea that maybe we don't want to be as dependent on the Americans because of free trade. And that again gets back to narrative and creating the political space to have the conversation so the politicians connect. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, you see, I mean, you see me smiling in the last uh, on that last point with don't be too, uh, you know, not wanting to be too dependent on the Americans. I mean, Donald Trump kind of scared us a little bit in the sense of look how how vulnerable are you uh, with a belligerent U.S. administration? But uh, I, I think that's an outlier. I think that's an exemption. We, we we talk about buy America with every single administration uh, since I've been born. And we've 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 tried to globalize, you know, trade avenues for for Canada, especially export avenues, around the world. But if we look at our actual export numbers, they're dependent on Americans buying them, and we have two things that they need that they don't have that they have to get from unfriendly nations. We're at a we're at a a a a, a crux at a, a crux uh, right now. This this unique point in history where. Uh, we have a lot more leverage uh, than we've ever had in creating a new deal, permanent deal with the Americans. And I mean, look, uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a young man anymore, but I'm not an old man. I'll be playing in this game for the next 20, 30 years at least. And in that 20, 30 years, my expectation of policymakers in both countries will be, let's look at reality and let's strengthen that. And the reality is we've got the Atlantic on one side, the Pacific on the other side, and everything we need uh, from here through to Mexico. And um, let's not screw up this opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, But grist for another conversation, because this is really, uh, when we're talking about industrial policy, the politics around industrial policy, the narrative around it, what are the opportunities? How do we position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis Europe and China? How do we position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the US and Mexico? These are big questions that you and I can't answer in this interview. Right. Yeah. So I want to go on to finish up this interview by talking about workers. Yeah. So my understanding it now is that the automaking industry in Canada is actually short quite a few workers. Is that correct? Yeah, we're probably short about 10% in healthy times. And what I mean is if we had all the semiconductors we could use, uh, we need a lot of people. Okay. Uh, so is it 10,000 in normal times or is it uh, 10,000 even if you had all the semiconductors you need? I think probably we're short, and you've probably heard me say it, short about 10,000 in parts supply. We're probably short about 5,000 in automotive assembly. And then, you know what, you're probably in the tens of thousands in in uh, distribution and service. And it's not, it's not, first of all, it's not native to automotive, but then it, because of that, it's not easy to solve. You know, we're in this 
strange uh, labor market that I, I think is unprecedented, at least uh, in my time, that uh, you don't solve this by throwing more money at it. Everybody's trying to solve it by throwing more money at it. Yet you have to be competitive. You have to uh, throw some money at it. Uh, but I think what we what people are looking for right now is stability. Uh, they're looking for flexibility in their work arrangements, which you can't do on an assembly line. Uh, so you have to buffer that with work integrated learning. Uh, you know, helping them improve their skill sets, and then you you risk that they're going to leave. Uh, Project Arrow, for in in many ways, for us is a uh, a labor lighthouse. What we're trying to show people that we need to come and work in the automotive uh, supply sector is here's the cathedral on a hill. Now who's going to cut the rocks? Who's going to melt the glass? That's the business you're in. You're in the Canadian auto business and this is a Canadian car. And I, I think when you see it, um, it's one of those things that people will be proud of and then it'll help us recruit. I went to a high school in uh, uh, a middle school and a high school in Norwood, Ontario last week. And I showed them a bunch of sketches, the nine finalists. When I showed them the arrow without telling them it was the arrow, they, they went crazy. And I said, do you want to buy one? And they said, yes. And I said, well, I don't want you to buy one. When you graduate from high school and go to university, I want you to pick the disciplines that have you working in our industry. Because if I can't get you excited now, I'm never going to get you in 10 years from now. Okay. Here, we all know that there's labor shortages right now. Very yeah. low unemployment in, in this country and in the U.S., and I've seen a couple of studies now that their explanation for it is that during COVID, I mean, we've known that baby boomers were going to uh, retire for a long time. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm 63 and I'm a tail end boomer. You know, yeah. the boomers yeah. are mostly out of the labor force. But so in during the pandemic, and quite a large number of boomers and maybe some Gen Xers uh, retired. And the group that came in behind them at the other end of the labor market, the, the, the Gen Z or, you know, whatever that group is now, I can't keep up, uh, was much smaller than the group that retired. Yeah. So your labor force actually shrank yeah. at a time when the labor force arguably needs to, you know, get ready to expand. And that, I don't know, you know, that's going to affect your industry, but it's going to affect a lot of other industries as well. And I don't know how we fix that. Now, is what's the what's the chatter amongst your members about how to fix that? Wow. You know, when I was at an event last week where I spoke right after Stephen Polos, and Stephen, former uh, Bank of Canada uh, governor, said the exact same thing. He said, actually, the boomer, the, the time frame from when the boomers entered the, the labor market, late 60s, to exiting just now, that was unnatural levels of 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 uh, labor availability. We're going back to natural levels. It just lasted for so long that that we all thought it was unnatural. And Gen Xers and Gen Zers, there's just less of them. And um, you know, it kind of got everybody in the room to go, hmm. I, you know, we, we hadn't thought of it in that way. Uh, the the fact of the matter is that with a smaller labor pool, which I agree with, there's a smaller labor pool, you got to offer them something different. And um, they're looking for, I mean, yes, there's cultural differences, but it's got to be a path. The, the thing with, there's so many boomers and for so long, you know, that there's a, if you listen to the generations talk to each other, it's like, well, the, the, the millennials and the Gen Zers, I'm a Gen Xer, uh, they're entitled, you know, they want to be able to go to the top. They want to be able to bring the dog to work. They want to do all kinds of things that we didn't have that choice of doing. 
I think it's the responsibility of the of the outgoing generations and then the middle generations like Gen X to hear that, to translate that into, okay, look, here's what's on offer. You could be um, Arrow Inc. I'll build a prototype and I'll show you, but you could build a Canadian automotive sector. Several Canadian companies making autonomous connected hydrogen zero emission vehicles. But what you need to do for that is I have to I have to hand some of the controls to you and get your inputs on product and in a way in which that we source and 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 we act as uh global industrial leaders. And then two, you may have to leave the dog at home. And 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 it's a proverbial dog, but who's gonna want to leave the dog at home when there's so much competition and when it's just about money? But if I say to you, I'm gonna do something different. Like in Italy, you know, my family's heritage Italian. We spent a lot of time in Italy in the auto sector. The difference between Canada and Italy, if you look at it on paper, similar-sized economies. But in Italy, you got to wait your turn. There's a culture of waiting your turn. There are no 30-year-old dreamers in Italy. There's 45-year-old dreamers. Well, we need 30-year-old dreamers in Canada to make it work. And so because of that, the 45-year-olds have to say, tell me about your dreams. Let's work on them together. I'll help you help me, but I will pass the baton. Or you're going to be so empowered that you're going to take it from me. A lot of this sounds ethereal, but it isn't. It's a posture. And I, I had to fight my way, uh, like a lot of my other uh, my, my peers and colleagues, uh, to where I am. Um, but it isn't rear guard action. I got to pull the 20 and 30-year-olds with us. So that sounds like the, the, the culture within the auto industry is changing. It has to. I mean, it has to because... Um, the, the the perception, you know, I look across the street, uh, there's a beautiful uh, full-service grocery store, 100,000 square feet that pays about the same as an uh, entry-level job in a in a uh, parts facility. And I'm going to ask people to work second and third shift, or you work in here where you interact with human beings and everything's lighted, uh, lit, and colorful, and you know what your shifts are, you can cut back on them, and there are days you, you can't go in. So on this side, we got to do something better. We got to take some moonshots. Uh, we've got to, uh, you know, we spent the last thirty years getting competitive through the Toyota production system and talking lean, 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 lean. Great, but my children who are late teens don't care about driving. They don't care about cars. They don't care about the product. It's going to be very difficult to get them to get excited about making and engineering the product. And if we say that's where we need you to be, we'll incentivize to get you there, but. You're not involved in the design, the 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 deployment, the 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 thinking and dreaming of it. They're not going to stay. They're not going to stay. And we have to do better. And the thing that we lack in this country in automotive is, who are those um, companies uh, that like uh, a Porsche or a Toyota or a Ford will inspire you? And our biggest successes are the auto parts suppliers, and uh, I represent them. They're great companies, uh, great employment. We've got to do something differently as auto parts suppliers and as a country in Canada. And how do we excite people on this stuff? Because otherwise, it's a shrug. Visions, narratives, storytelling, yeah, yeah. all of that that kind of stuff. Well, we're in, we're in agreement on that. Flavio, uh, as always, uh, as yeah. expected, a great conversation. Really appreciate this. And it won't be 18 months until I have you back. 
I'm going to show you the arrow in three or four weeks, and then you're going to tell me how quickly you want to do a piece inside the arrow with me. <laughs> It'll be fairly quickly, I can tell you. Yeah, I, I, yeah. One thing that you and I talked about the last one is we're both old car guys, and yeah. uh, I'm excited about the technology. So I want to learn all about the arrow. Trust me, I'll be there with bells on. Look, there's a lot of tech, but there's also over 500 horsepower, and I know you like that part. And so, uh, I, the old so, butt dynamometer, as we used yeah, to call it. Exactly, exactly. Great to be thank, on, thank and uh, happy to do it again.